My chance to go watch made in China. We play ping pong ball made in China. Get bitch mad at this. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider, and our guest today is Julian Gerwitz. He's currently a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of Unlikely Partners: Chinese Reformers, Western Economists, and the Making of Global China. In it, he argues that Western economists have played a crucial role in shaping the ideas and strategies of key CCP economists and policymakers. Without their participation, China would not have reformed as quickly, innovatively, and successfully. So, aside from shedding light on China's reform and opening, he's also written one of the few economic intellectual history books that you could legitimately call a t- page turner. So, Julian, great to have you on, and、uh, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Jordan. It's great to be here. Sure. So, before we、uh, jump into the、uh, the work, I'd love to hear a little bit about your China arc. So, what you what first got you interested in the Middle Kingdom and、uh, and its history? So. When I was a kid, I was reading a bunch of books about China, sort of just children's books, and、uh, it really captured my imagination.、Um, I, I don't have a more、uh, intellectual or, or sophisticated story than that, but so I started、uh, learning about China, reading about China, and then also learning Chinese. And so、uh, it's been a lifelong interest.、Um, Really, actually, it's probably my only lifelong interest,、um, but、uh, it's been a real source of of wonderful、uh, deepening over over the years. Because as I grew up, China became、uh, a country that many more Americans were interested in, and where the opportunity to help Americans understand China, understand its history, its culture, its economy, and so on,、uh, seemed to become bigger and bigger. And so that's how I ended up. Uh, deciding to study Chinese politics and Chinese history, and、um, I'm still really enjoying it. Awesome. So, how did you get to this topic? And can you talk a little bit about your your research process for exploring the、uh, the reform efforts in the '80s? I first came across the economists、uh, who are at the center of of this book and this research when I was living in Beijing and working for. A finance and economics magazine there called Caijing, and Caijing had a close relationship with a Chinese economist named Wu Jinglian, and Professor Wu was a real leader of the reformers、uh, in the 1980s and then into the 90s and indeed all the way to the present, where he still remains a really influential voice in China, and so it was really in part through.、Uh, Learning more about the、uh, economists who remained reformers in the present day, that I then went back and started to discover the incredible continuities of this history. The fact that so many of the same issues and debates were at the center of Chinese policymaking in the 1980s、uh, that remain essential today. And so, in terms of the research process, that also. Uh, helped shape my research process because I was able to interview and talk with、uh, many prominent economists in China and some former officials, people who had been really integral to the kinds of debates that I write about.、Um, and then, of course, because my story is、uh, transnational and about economists from all over the world who went to China. Uh, I also did a lot of research and some interviews with 
uh, economists, about economists, in their personal papers and so on, uh, who went to China in the 1980s and helped uh, shape the, the policy debate there from the outside. So what was the, uh, the response you got from these uh, Chinese economists in particular when you approached them saying that you were, uh, you were working on this topic? Well, on the one hand, to a lot of them, I think the topic seemed pretty obvious. It seemed like, well, of course, we learned about modern economics from the people who had been practicing it for so long. And of course, as we were trying to reform our economy, we consulted with advisors from all around the world. And one of the really interesting conversations that I had with a lot of them was reflecting on why it is that these stories are not better known. Why to the people who participated, it seems like the most natural thing in the world now that they would have done it, but that actually, as the history shows at the time, it was a very bold decision uh, and sort of to help them remember that. And then also why... uh, to people around the world, it can be a very surprising story to tell them that actually, uh, despite some of the images that we have of China, some of the images that we have of the policymaking process in China as closed and opaque, actually, in the 1980s, uh, there was real openness and engagement to ideas from all around the world. So those conversations were fascinating with these Chinese economists. Um, because they really helped me understand some of the potential implications of these stories. Fantastic. So let's let's bring the conversation to the, the Bashan Conference of 1955, which sort of serves as the focal point of your book. So could you first start by giving us a bit of a sense of where the reform effort was coming up to 1985? Sure. So I'll just run through the, the preceding decade quickly, I guess. So Mao Zedong died in 1976. And Pretty much as soon as he died, there was a reorientation in economic policy under the uh, much neglected and somewhat unjustly derided Hua Guofeng. But by December of 1978, Deng Xiaoping had uh, risen to become the paramount leader at the famous Third Plenum. Uh, It was in December of 1978, Deng really declared the start of a new era of reform and opening. But the problem that he and many of his top economic officials and advisors confronted was that actually, while they knew that they wanted to make China wealthy and powerful, they didn't know exactly what that would take or even what that would look like because they were really still committed to socialism in a broad sense. But they knew that central planning wasn't the way forward. So they began this process of learning from all around the world, as well as experimenting with all sorts of new ideas within China, because they were trying to figure out the content and direction of the reforms. And this is the process that uh, is, you know, known colloquially as crossing the river by feeling for the stones. Um, So in the early 80s, they very quickly saw that the reforms to agriculture had been very successful. Uh, The peasants and farmers of China had been so completely constrained and distorted by the many, many Maoist 
agricultural and other rural industrial campaigns that once you freed them up and told them, hey, you know your plot of land better than anybody else. What do you think you should grow there? And these sorts of things. Uh, the, the, the consequences were really remarkable and quick. But the big challenge uh, that was still at the top of mind by 1985 was urban reform, industrial reform, how to transform the system uh, in the cities and in industry without just going down the path of capitalism, which they didn't want to do. China's enterprises were incredibly inefficient. Uh, Many of them were not at all producing the kind of results that they needed to. And from the Chinese perspective, it was a really distinct challenge to then begin and push forward the urban and industrial reforms. So in 1985, so in 1985, it was really uh, that question, the question of urban and industrial reform that was at the center of the Chinese were considering. So one of my favorite sources you quoted in your book was a poem that economic reformer wrote uh, speaking to just how painful this uh, reform process was. Uh, It said that, uh, translated from the Chinese, of course, uh, reform and opening is tremendously complicated. Chinese and foreign thinkers are pondering it together. Do not obsess over having a complete vision in mind. These are times when even an old horse does not know its way. Uh, And the old horse, uh, as you write, is a bit of a pun in that uh, the character for Ma uh, of Lao Ma is the same as uh, Marx's character, uh, kind of insinuating that maybe didn't quite have all the answers to to what China was facing in the the 80s. That's right. So coming up to 1985, what was the the role that foreign economists had played before then? So... Beginning very soon after Mao died, there was a real effort to consult with economists primarily from Eastern Europe who had themselves experienced uh, reforms to socialism. And in many cases, it helped lead reforms to socialism. So one figure uh, in this category was a guy named Oda Schick, who was a Czech reformer who had been involved in economic policy during the Prague Spring in 1968. And he was brought to China despite the fact that he was living in exile because he had had to leave the country following uh, the the return to a more authoritarian uh, and centrally planned model in Czechoslovakia. And so for him, going to China was actually the first time he'd been in a socialist country in a very long time. And for the Chinese, he offered really exciting visions of what a mixed system somewhere between state and market could look like. So that's one set of people they consulted before 1985. And then on the other hand, they were really willing to listen to a very broad range of people, even from the capitalist West. So after relations with the United States were normalized, uh, they also began to consult a whole variety of economists from the U.S., including in 1980, extremely early in the reform process, uh, they invited Milton Friedman to China. And Friedman, uh, who was, you know, a real free market fundamentalist, uh, went to China on what was a somewhat uh, messy trip. I describe it in the book. But he... Uh, his being there, even if the trip didn't go well, is is a sign, I think, of how 
committed they were to this idea of listening to a really broad range of ideas. Uh, great. Thanks, Julian. Could you walk us through some of the main players on the Chinese side? Sure. So at the very top, uh, just below Deng Xiaoping, was the premier of China in this period, uh, a man named Zhao Ziyang. And Zhao was really committed to this idea that uh, China's economic policy should be built on engagement with ideas from the best economists all around the world. And he encouraged his top advisors to seek out uh, these foreign partners and interlocutors. So I do think part of this story really is centered on Zhao. But then within the world of Chinese economic officials and thinkers, there were really an extraordinary variety of people. Um, so just looking at, let's say, the, the 1985 boat trip, uh, the, Bashan, the Bashan conference that you mentioned before, you had really three generations of economists there. On the one hand, you had the very most senior economists and economic officials in China who had come up in a world of Marxian political economy and had helped build China's first five-year plan. Then you had a middle generation of people who were a little bit more comfortable dealing with the uh, world, especially the other side of the Iron Curtain, uh, and then third, you had a young generation of people who were in their late 20s or 30s uh, and, you know, who were really excited about this period of opening uh, and the opportunities that it would present to them. And many of the people who were, of course, in their 30s in the 1980s are now uh, of the age where they're steering China's economic policy today. And there's huge continuity there. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty remarkable uh, set of characters on the Chinese side because you have so many different backgrounds and such a shared sense of mission to make China wealthy and powerful again. Could you talk a little bit about the stakes of this conference in particular and then uh, paint a picture of, of uh, the conference itself, the scenery, the boat, uh, the wives, sure. the translators? So, sure. Sure. So basically, the stakes of this conference were, I think, quite high. Because at this moment in 1985, there was, as we were talking about a minute ago, huge uncertainty over the direction of the reforms, and in particular, whether the urban and industrial reforms were working. Uh, so this delegation of economists from all around the world came to first Beijing, and they met with Zhao Ziyang. And then from there, they flew south. And boarded a cruise ship. So the idea from the Chinese side was that all of these very senior economists and officials from, from China would be too distracted if they just met in Beijing. You know, they'd have all sorts of incoming, you know, memoranda and messages and phone calls and the churn of the daily work that they did. So instead, they isolated them on a riverboat for a week so that they could really focus on big thinking and broad-based engagement. You know, on the Western side, on the side of the foreigners who went to China, you had real diversity and variety of views. So that's another reason that I think the stakes were so high, because there was this opportunity to consult with 
economists of all stripes at once and to really see how they thought about problems and what they thought would be best for China. Um, should I give you a couple of examples of, of those those guys? Absolutely. Um, please walk us through the main ideas the, um, uh, the Westerners were presenting to the challenges that uh, the Chinese sure. were facing. Sure. Great. So um, there are sort of two economists who were uh, of the foreign visitors who I think are most uh, most interesting and, and I argue were most influential. So one was James Tobin, who was a neo-Keynesian at Yale. Uh, he'd advised President Kennedy and he had won the Nobel Prize a few years before the conference. And despite all of that, despite his extraordinary stature, he really went on this trip to provide a macroeconomics 101 crash course, uh, a real overview. Because as I was saying, a lot of the economists from the Chinese side had very little experience or background with what we would think of as modern economics. As I said a moment ago, they'd been trained in Marxian political economy. And so Tobin gave them an introduction to aggregate demand management. He talked about what a central bank should look like as it develops. And, of course, sitting in the room were many of the people who would build China's uh, institutions of macroeconomic policymaking. Then, on the other hand, the other figure who I find most fascinating in this context is a man named Janos Kornai. He was of Hungarian origin and had remained active in Hungary, but at this point was teaching at Harvard. And he was a really sophisticated analyst and critic of traditional socialist economics. He talked about and argued that shortage, uh, the phenomenon of shortage, the idea of having lengthy queues at every store and not enough choice, not enough quantity of goods, etc., was an innate problem with a planned economy, that it was an inbuilt feature of the system that was inevitable. And the argument that he presented to the Chinese uh, on this river cruise, which was very influential, was that China, therefore, needed to have a system where enterprises were much more responsive to market forces. So Korn, I really stressed to them, focus on reforming the enterprises so that instead of just listening to their bureaucratic superiors, these firms are responding to the pressures of supply and demand. Now, there, there is still a continuing role for the state uh, in that kind of system. But, but his argument really was uh, that if China developed a system where the state had broad macroeconomic control, but the uh, enterprises were being uh, subject to market pressures, that the results would be, would be quite good. And the Chinese economists who were listening thought that this was a, a very exciting argument. So um, you, you led me into my next question, which is uh, how, they, how they received these, uh, these ideas first, uh, just sitting there on the boat for the first time. But I want to um, 
not let this uh, detail pass that, of course, this was all done through translation. Um, and uh, you mentioned that at one point, an interpreter burst into tears, frustrated that she simply did not know how to translate many of the newfangled technical terms that had perhaps never been before uttered in mainland China. Um, you know, Marxian rhetoric had been uh, uh, deployed in Mandarin for some time at this point, but inflation and money supply uh, and all these macroeconomic management tools, they were literally coining on this boat words, uh, words for in Mandarin. Right. No, it's, a, it's an extraordinary moment because, you know, we now, when you engage with, with Chinese economists or people who are in finance in China today, they really are very sophisticated. And it's an extraordinary thing to remember that uh, just over 30 years ago, uh, when this river cruise occurred, the level was, was so much lower. And so it's another demonstration of a you know, widely documented and discussed fact, which is just how quickly China has developed. And in this case, just how quickly the profession of economics in China has developed. What did uh, what were the main things that the economists took from uh, took from hearing these lectures and having these conversations with the with the Westerners on the uh, on the river? Sure. So really, I think it's the the two core areas that I that I mentioned in talking about Tobin and Cornine. So you know, on the first, they really took a long term vision of what uh, macroeconomic policy making could be and what it could mean for. Uh, continued role for the state in the economy. And then uh, on the second, you know, from from Kornai, I think that they really took a vision of how China could, uh, without completely abandoning its commitments to broadly socialist ideas, and without abandoning uh, their commitments to the enterprises that were state-owned or or state-led, that they could implement reforms quite quickly uh, that would transform the economy and make the economy much more efficient. And so one specific example of that is Cornei talked a lot about a specific phenomenon in these enterprises, uh, which is he called the soft budget constraint, which basically just means that when these enterprises uh, under traditional socialism lost money, the state just bailed them out. Uh, they could just get more. So they had no incentive to tighten their belts or make tough decisions. Uh, when Cornei was talking about that to these Chinese economists as a universal phenomenon uh, in traditional socialist economies, the Chinese side said, yeah, that's exactly right. And so that term in particular, and the related concepts, uh, another term called investment hunger, which describes this insatiable appetite for more and more investment, these became really central terms in, in the Chinese discourse in this period, and indeed just a month or so after the conference, uh, Zhao Ziyang, the premier of China, who was really impressed by the report and readout on this conference that he got, uh, started using these terms in internal debates. And so we can really see a direct connection there. Can you talk about some of the pushback that these ideas had? I mean, we just had Sir Joe Da, we just had the 19th Party Congress, and um, uh, you know, even in 2017, the importance of, uh, of ideology uh, and even Marxist doctrine seems to still be playing a, a major role. So clearly there were uh, clearly not everyone was on board with what was uh, what was being discussed in the in the Dachan conference. So how did they um, uh, try to fight back against some of these uh, some of these newfangled Western ideas? Sure. Basically, 
in the post-Mao period, there's a continual process of back and forth contestation between more conservative uh, Chinese Communist Party officials. And, and what I mean by that is people who maybe weren't completely opposed to the idea of reform, but who thought that things needed to move very slowly and that it was most important to maintain the primacy of the party and the state and indeed of even central planning. You could have some market, but not too much. And then on the other hand, people who we might think of as, you know, more more uh, intensely reformist who wanted to really forge ahead with market-oriented reform and wanted to see China grow much faster. And obviously we know that the latter group, the reformers, won out. But in this period, it was not at all certain that they would win out. So there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of contestation. And... That included uh, a lot of debate about whether it was right to be listening to these foreigners, some of whom were from decadent capitalist countries. And so, you know, in the uh, process of engaging with the wider world in the way that I describe in the book, uh, there's a lot of criticism. The Many of these economists come under attack from more conservative elements in the party, uh, as anti-Marxist or as seeking to infiltrate and uh, undermine the authority of the, the party. And frankly, that remains an enduring theme today, just as you talk about. the On the one hand, the importance of uh, ideology and of maintaining the primacy of the party to many senior officials, including apparently Xi Jinping, uh, and then also real concern about the implications of too much engagement with foreigners, being too close to foreign ideas and institutions. So you're definitely right that this all, may, this all remains a very uh, sensitive and complicated set of issues. So coming back uh, before we wrap up to the, uh, the Western uh, impact on this story. So it seems like one of the... Um, books you were you were working off of was uh, Jonathan Spence's classic to change China uh, in it he profiles a number of uh, famous Westerners who've come with grand ambitions to reform the Chinese government reform Chinese culture all of whom seem to end up uh, with their hands uh, tucked behind their tails disappointed at uh, how little they were end up able to accomplish. Um, but it seems like the the reformers we're talking to, while certainly disappointed by some aspects of Chinese reform, didn't quite come in with the same perspective. Uh, so, what were you thinking about, um, and and how would you compare the uh, the performance and the outlook of of the subjects of your books to um, to, to Spence's? So, Jonathan Spence's book uh, is is really wonderful and impressive read, and it's it's I'd recommend it to any of your listeners. Um, but he's looking at an older model, and he's looking mainly at missionaries, at uh, advisors who went to China with a really clear sense of what they wanted the Chinese to do, and who tried to persuade or, uh, in some cases, force the Chinese to do what they wanted. And so that's why he calls the book To Change China, because it's about the aspirations of these Westerners and 
their, as you say, you know, often frustrated attempts to transform China in the image that they wanted. Now, on the other side, we have what happened in the reform period, where, sure, there was some evangelizing, but almost everyone who went to China in the period that I study knew that they were going to China on China's terms. So I really focus on the dynamics on the Chinese side of China and, and try to give as much agency as possible to the Chinese figures in this narrative, because frankly, they were in charge. They were calling the shots. And when you look at the sources, these economists writing in their diaries or talking to their friends at home make very clear that they knew that there was going to be a process of reflecting and interpreting their ideas within China, quite aside from whatever they uh, said or did when they were there. So I find that dynamic really fascinating because we can see how as China becomes stronger and uh, becomes a larger presence on the world stage, uh, it is even apparent to the types of people in a prior era who might have been missionaries uh, of a sort. Uh, It's even apparent to them that the Chinese have greater agency. So... Julian, thanks so much for uh, taking uh, the time to talk to us here. First off, uh, where can people follow you and, and follow your work? Sure. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just at Julian Gewertz. And uh, I tweet about work there. And then uh, I'm also frequently writing for a variety of places. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that's the best place to follow follow my work if you're interested. And uh, I also hope you'll consider getting the book. Uh um, you might not enjoy it as much as as much as Jordan did, but uh, I I hope you'll enjoy it even so. So aside from your book, if you could throw out one more recommendation for our readers, as well as a book that you wish you could read on a topic that maybe hasn't been appropriately covered or or is calling out for a uh, a book length treatment. Sure. So I just read a wonderful memoir uh, by a British Chinese writer named Xiao Lu Guo. Uh, It was published in the U.S. under the title Nine Continents, uh, and it is a terrific and very, very vivid uh, memoir of growing up in China in exactly this period and of trying to think about the wider world. So for something that's nonfiction of a more personal sort, uh, I really recommend that highly. Um, I also would, if I can do a second book recommendation, really enjoyed... uh, Howard French's recent book, Everything Under the Heavens. Uh, French is is one of our best writers on China and the world, and this is a really uh, memorable and concise take on uh, China's history and its its engagement in Asia and beyond. Uh, In terms of one book that I wish I could read, uh, I think there is a really exciting book waiting to be written about what it means that we're living in a so-called new era, Xin uh, Dai. This is the core of what came out of the 19th Party Congress. And to me, it's crying out for some analysis because we have seen a few books emerge about Xi Jinping uh, that have been pretty solid in some cases, but uh, we haven't yet uh, seen a book about where Xi Jinping thinks he's really taking China. 
And I think that that would be a really wonderful book that uh, I'd love to read. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Julianne. Thank you, Jordan. It's great to talk to you.